0: Welcome to Sardisms, where we take great ideas and bring them together to have great conversations. In this episode, we welcome Louise Wilson, who is a Clinical Networks Delivery Manager at the NHS and a PhD student at Newcastle University, who was recommended to us by a previous Sardism guest, a former CCIO and psychiatrist, Joe McDonald. Lou is an experienced network leader and skilled in health informatics and puts her knowledge to use throughout the healthcare sector. Self-described as a typical Hermione Granger, Lou is methodical, loves learning in groups, knows the importance of storytelling, and strives to make positive change wherever she goes. Well, thank you, Lou, for joining us. And can you start off by telling us a little bit about uh, your origin story and how you came to be where you are?
1: Well, thank you very much for inviting me to take part in this today. Uh, So degree in English literature, maybe not an obvious first degree um, (laughs) route to 30 years in in health informatics. Um, But my mum had been practice manager. So I'd spent a summer as a student just post 1990 GP contracts, so i bit of history here, uh, when um, there'd just been the introduction of a, a reimbursement scheme for GP computers. So GPs could claim 90% reimbursement for introducing the first computer system. So the first task, obviously, was to uh, take those massive piles of Lloyd, Lloyd George envelope and somehow put them in some sort of form on these early GP computers. So I did that for a summer with the repeat description. And that was that was fine. And then finished my degree and was fairly certain I was gonna do some more studying or do teach training or something. And um decided I wanted to work for a year and a one year contract came up in Nottinghamshire, at uh, Nottinghamshire FHSA. Now this is, I mean, Joe McDonald talks about the lava lamp. This is many iterations. Hmm. Um, and th- there was a job basically doing that across Nottinghamshire, 185 GP practices, one-year contract, going from practice to practice, helping them just again, just post-1990 contracts. it's like 9192, uh helping move these massive piles of paper and putting them onto these newly installed uh blank slates of, of GPIT systems. And there was something like 70 different systems, I can't remember the number, it might have been 20, it might have been 100, um, across Nottinghamshire at that time. And I went from, at my, my little red fiesta, I went from practice to practice, doing what I could, a week at a time. Hmm. Learn a lot about uh, about how different practices were set up, learned a lot about problem-oriented clinical records, learned a lot of, yeah, just how people did things differently. And and what happened in in that time was that... by the time we got to the third practice, I was kind of saying to, oh, well, you know, that's great. I'm happy to do that. But you know how they do it in this other practice. They've done it like this. Oh, that's a good idea. And then my my boss at the time was really keen on groups. And she did two things. One, she asked me to take charge of setting up local user groups for all these practices. So as long well as me going from practice to practice, we brought them all together. Hmm. It was just a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And peers, clinicians, uh, practice managers, practice staff receptionists, all getting together on an evening um, and talking about how they were doing this, stuff, what it meant for uh, quality and improvement and the affordances of this, of this new technology. But she also, my boss, sent me to a couple of national use group meetings. And, and I can remember sitting in the back, uh, first conference I'd ever been to, Sitting in the back in a massive conference centre in Birmingham, and it was just so inspiring and so much fun and a lot of laughter and people just generously sharing with each other. And and I I joined for a year and I'm here
0: almost thirty years later. Wow!
2: (laughs) (laughs) Because of course this was the time, sort of pre-internet social networks. It was a it was the the original social network.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think a lot of people have stayed. You know, I, I then went to um, the primary healthcare specialist group meetings and, you know, that first meeting people like Ian Purvis and uh, Cheryl Cowley and Ewan Davis and a lot of names that you will know are still, you know, so much expertise and, and were those early, early pioneers of, uh, of really, really good stuff all with fantastic intention about um, I'm a bit allergic to the phrase putting the patient at the centre because who's doing the putting it's a, just a bit of a power thing that I'm a bit of an issue but absolutely focused that was never a phrase you would have heard it was absolutely absolutely patient centred absolutely about what this means for direct care and for the population and the people that we see and serve so yeah who wouldn't be inspired by that did I mention it was a lot of fun as well <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> it's an important very important element of these communities isn't it uh, that's why we put in the execution essentials mm. when, uh, and i think joe joe mcdonald when we put that in he was like yes that's that definitely needs to be in there yeah as uh, an important part of any digital transformation mm. or, or any part of health tech really yeah
1: well it's one of the questions i asked in my topic guide in my phd actually when i'm interviewing people What's been fun, hmm.
0: right? So I know you and Kevin have done 500 words a day of writing, and uh, I just wanted to hear a little bit about how you got into that. Well,
1: I think we have met. Joe brought you to informatics in the
0: pub.
2: He did virtually. I'm the, the the lone southerner, I think, the soft southerner amongst all these Geordies. Yeah, There's something going on in Newcastle. What? Yeah, something going on up there, isn't there? That you've got very. It's. It, I think it's a region with a real strong identity and it seems to bring people together.
1: It has definitely got that and definitely histories and traditions of of, of collaborating and, and and groups and forums and networks and um there's a, a fantastic book called *The Northumbrians* by Dan Jackson, which I recommend um, about all of that stuff. Definitely a tradition of doing that, but also that tradition of informatics. So, as I say, I started, started in Nottingham, worked in uh, worked in Leeds for a year, and gradually moved north. Um, to work with EWS group at the time and uh, the South Centre for Health Informatics, my future husband, actual husband, I've never, <laughs> never talk, never called him that, um, who who I met through through work, met him at a primary healthcare specialist group uh, conference. He's, he's a Professor of Information Systems now at. Northumbria. So there was definitely a hub of really fantastic stuff going on, which you know work brought me here. and uh, yeah, a lot of collaboration and a tradition of, of of informatics stuff.
2: And that led to informatics in the pub. Yeah, how, how did informatics in the pub come about? It's for it is full of jewelries. I'm there's a few of our southerners. But I think COVID's allowed us to mm-hmm. sneak in. So it's obviously, it's a long five-six 600 mile trip for me to uh, yeah. end up in the pub in Newcastle. It's been great. Yeah, it is great. Fun.
1: So um, with some of those people in the 1990s, I was part of a group called Tetley User Group. And the Tetley stuff was something, total electronic uh, linkage of electronics, something or other. We made it some sort of torture. But we used to meet in the pub and talk about informatics and stuff. And then um, when when I was working at Great North Care Record, and Nick Booth said, "Oh, you know, some sort of community of practice that is like pint of informatics. We've got a pint of science up here. I don't know if that's a national thing. Um, that would be really great." And I went, "I'm on it." <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool! I'm on it. You said it in the office. I'm on it. So Nick and I set it up and, and launched it, and and uh, it just the most. A astonishingly brilliant group. Um, it started out uh, small, think four or five of us, and we handed it over to a guy called Matt Alexander, uh, who runs it now, who has done the most tremendous job with it. Virtual has given us the affordances of not worrying about the five hundred mile drive too much, and it's very organic. and um, And it's 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 kind of the best of what good groups are about because there are people who are by virtue of their organizational structural authority in lots of informatics discussions in you know top floor rooms but that's not how you get into the pub room how you get into informatics in the in the room is because you want to be there mm. with outstanding invitation of um bring a friend who'd be interested that was actually in the original documentation um i, I wrote that with the hermione bit um and um it's
2: it's all come as a welcome. absolutely all comes as a welcome.
0: even
2: Southerners <laughs> even southerners and, and midlanders oh and midlanders yeah so, so that's how we met through there and we I, I did a talk on public money public code which' I've been working with mm-hmm. professor Joe Mcdonald on um and then we I think we we connected on on Twitter you know how these things happen. Yeah. I think I said that I was doing 500 words a day. For thirty days, um, it's what it's part of what I consider a skill stack that need that's really important to build up. You know, you can be a techie. It's really important to be able to express yourself and explain those those things to people. So I took it as a personal challenge to improve my writing. I know Mariah and I have been been doing courses and things and mm-hmm. um, trying to improve our writing skills in the company more generally. And then I posted that on Twitter, and you you came along and said. I like the sound of that, and and you sort of f- threw yourself at it, and I thought, oh, <laughs> I'm going to stick. I'm going to stick with this. Absolutely, I did. So um, uh,
1: on on Twitter as well, um, Christian Payne, um, who's at documentally on Twitter. Who, uh, if you don't follow, he's uh, amazing. And I'd kept, I'd, I'd um, found Christian um, because I was at a conference called Thinking Digital many years ago, and I don't if you found Thinking Digital is absolutely my favourite conference, not to offend anybody else who runs conferences who also (laughs) I adore. But Thinking Digital is in the sage, hasn't been held for a couple of years because of this and that. But the most astonishing uh, conference of uh, bringing together people who are interested in any sort of, and so much of this is transferable as you talk about skills and, I choose techie, but okay, for people like me who um, are just aspiring techies and um, wonderful. And there was a speaker who uh, was talking about how they'd been part of the campaign to restore Bletchley Park. And that was you know, the presentation and pointed to and said, you know, couldn't have done this without the storytelling and the documentary making and him, And that's just brilliant. Subscribe to his newsletter and uh, yeah, really fantastic, interesting stuff. And um, he posted something a couple of years ago. That's how long it's been in the in the making about how to do how to write a novel, how to write a book five hundred words a day, and put this little lovely grid that you could download and tick off five hundred words. And it has been like around for two years. And then you posted, Kevin. I'm doing five hundred words a day. And I'm like, now's the moment. Yeah. Can I join? I want to do that. And then you offered to be my accountability buddy yeah. and promised to praise me every day For when I did it and threatened. What did you threaten?
2: <laughs> I just threatened to be like a drill sergeant. Yeah. But what I think the thing is the the trick, the honest truth is that being an accountability buddy, considering I was also doing it, made me <laughs> accountable to you. What kind of what kind of accountability buddy would I be if I wasn't also doing it myself? Mm-hmm. And so I was like, all right, I better I better carry on with this. <laughs> I've got somebody else who I'm who I'm would drag over the coals if they don't do it.
1: Brave thing to do, you
2: know. Random Twitter conversation and saying um, it was also slightly stupid thing to do. I don't know about <laughs> you, but it was hard work. Yeah, but it was so cool. really hard work. I'm not sure my wife Francesca was that place that I did it. I mean, she was, but she was also like, well, wow, this is taking up so much time." I I don't know how long. Um, you found, found yourself spending on it but i was probably for a start i was doing way more than 500 words a day it's quite hard to write 500 words mm. and then you accidentally write a thousand or 1500 or sometimes even 2000 words and it's one o'clock in the morning and you've been on there for like two two hours i think i i, I never actually counted it up i think i got to about 25 thousand words uh,
1: i think i got to about twenty thousand words
2: that's yeah
1: good that's great but i, I learned uh I mean, I mean some of it was very practical because um i got a couple of deadlines um one for a book chapter that marcus Bohr and i were co-authoring at the time which um yeah there was a deadline coming up for that so the discipline just of getting words down and also it was it was also good fun um but i also learned the different sorts of writing that I do and how long it takes. So it's made me a better time manager when it comes to organising my, my writing. So I know I can write a 500 word blog off the top of my head in about 40 minutes. I know if I'm going to write 500 words that might go into my PhD, it's most of a day.
0: Yeah.
1: I know if I'm going to write something, you know, that was somewhere in the middle or a report, it's, it's more than 40 minutes, but less than a day. So I've, I've, I, it really taught me a lot. And, um, and also I am pretty determined if I say I'm going to do something. Mm. Also caught to midnight a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> quing, quing. It was fun.
2: You wouldn't be Hermione Granger if you'd stopped and not done it. I'm really, I really am seeing that now. You've mentioned it. Now you've said you personify Hermione Granger. I, I do, do see it now. <laughs> <laughs> what would Hermione Granger do?
0: So, who would
1: your Har-
2: Harry Potter characters be then?
0: Oh God, great question. Oh, It'd probably be Snape. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, he's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> no, he is. wonderful.
2: Yeah, I was going to say Snape.
0: Oh, sorry, you can, okay.
2: have, can I have. Snape. <laughs> Because I feel like people feel like I'm sort of slightly evil sometimes, and actually,
0: but you um, have underlying—you have some good intentions.
2: I'm just uh, quietly trying to do yeah. good things, and um, oh. even if it doesn't come across as being
0: <laughs> good, <laughs> I
2: mean? don't.
0: I don't see that, Kevin. <laughs> I think Snape's a wonderful one to go for. Oh,
2: yeah, I'm gonna go Snape. I would always definitely be in Slytherin. I, I've never liked the idea that Slytherin was like bad house. Why? Why? Why should they be pre-sorted into? But I haven't really read it all. <laughs> <laughs> Francesca tells me because she's a big mm. Harry Potter fan. She she's gonna hate listening so, to this. But, well, she said that it's all kind of resolved, and that that they explain that Sliverin thing and how it's not all kind of pre-sorted. Who are the evil kids? I mean, like, to get the kids in year seven and go, right, <laughs> which ones of you are evil? Okay, you're in this house over here. Like, just seems a bit predetermined, but I'm told that that's, that's resolved. Sorry, have we gone off on a tangent?
1: So yes, thank you for being my accountability buddy Over the 500 word thing And I'm glad we're going to do it again I needed to stop I couldn't have carried on About day 14 I was like, I want
2: to do this forever Because I'm writing loads and it's really fun Well, we are going to do it again, aren't we? We're going to do it again in September Yeah, I did did need a break from it Because I did find it exhausting I learned a lot for it What did you learn? Just to do something Having zero words on the page is... uh, is incomparable to having 500 words of absolute drivel, <laughs> even if they're even if it is drivel. It helped me get thoughts out on the page as, as I'm showing you here. I, I've got a very <laughs> stuttery sort of way of thinking, and it forced me to to take some of those ideas and, and put them down on paper and actually formulate them a bit more in my mind. and And writing became like a way of thinking. Um which was which was really important to me and it, and it made me realize the parts of that thinking that weren't solid that were kind of very ethereal and sort of out there and wooly and and it forces you to 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 take some of those concepts that are quite abstract and turn them into something real. Writing is thinking
1: for me and the discipline and one of the phrases that I've absolutely internalized which which rob, uh, husband Rob gave me as, as sort of early on as I started my PhD was writing was you can't edit thin air mm. you know just mm. get it done and I wondered if coding is like that I've not done much coding I've done a little tiny bit but is coding like that is it Do you have to organise yeah. your thoughts before you start or can you get in and edit it
2: yeah there's a guy called David Heinemeyer Hansen the base cam guy he did a talk at a Ruby on Rails conference which is the framework that he created And he talked about the words computer scientist, computer engineer, and how they weren't quite the right words. And the best word that he could come up with it was was a software writer, because actually a lot of it is reading code that other people have put out there and having a style like you can actually look at someone's code and you can see their style you can actually take some of their characteristics of how they write code and if you're in a software team you could actually probably look at a bit of code and go oh Rubble wrote that or barbara wrote that and, you know the way i write code and the way that barbara our cto writes code is is quite different she's very methodical i'm i'm a messy thinker i i write code like a like an artist because i think of code got a bit of an artistic temperament yeah um it's quite sort of choppy, and it, and it's a similar thing is uh, writing is rewriting. I can never remember the expression: make it, make it work, make it right, make it fast, or something, which basically says, you know, do do the thing so that the code does what you need it to do. Come back to it, make it so that you didn't stick it together with gaffer tape, and then optimize it so that it, go, it runs more more neatly. And that that definitely feels a lot like writing, doesn't it? When you when you write some, you're getting your your um, base thoughts down on paper. So that that 500 words sort of screed that you just dump your dump your brain down, and then you're like, well, what are the main points here? What's the main things that I'm trying to say? And then you're starting to compartmentalise it, so you're sort of refactoring it. That's what we call it in software coding: is you're, you're refactoring the code, and then you're coming back to it and. Um, and then you're then you're trying to optimize it and sort of remove unnecessary parts and things that aren't actually doing the work that needs to be done or or s- parts of the story that are unnecessary. So there's like a, a phrase YAGNI, which is you ain't gonna need it, which is write, writing things in software that actually are solving a problem that you assume you're gonna have, but you actually don't. So yeah, it's got loads, loads and loads of parallels with writing. Yeah,
1: very interesting. There's a in I remember this, you know, from doing English at university. There was uh, this thing about writer intention and reader response and, um, you know, what you you intend as the writer and who who you're writing for and writing for different audiences and, you know, what you write in your journals that you burn immediately after writing, you know, do you write differently to if you're writing something that is going to be... Led by other people, and again, is there a parallel with that? With coding, is there?
2: Yeah, open source. When we've talked a little bit about public money, public code. When we speak to the software engineers about that, they feel very differently about writing something that's going to be open source. It's very exposing. You feel very vulnerable, very naked to the, you know, to people to come along and say this isn't good. But it also. <laughs> think about how hard you would exercise if you spent your life walking around naked <laughs> <laughs> you'd really take care of yourself wouldn't you and I think there's there's an element of open source code that if if, it's, if you're going to put it out there and yeah. people can mm-hmm. see it you're going to make looks sure good. that it looks good mm-hmm. each body ready well this uh, conversation's taken a turn so yeah. it certainly
1: has <laughs>
0: thanks kevin i've got into
1: naturism But <laughs> vulnerability is i mean you know that vulnerability and open source code about writing you know the intention with which you write about open source thinking about open source knowledge about sharing our our vulnerabilities and our uncertainties and and creating positive agricultures where where we can do that 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 sounds like it's across decision making and 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 I was I was so pleased that Toby Lowe um replied in my Twitter shout out mm. for words of wisdom. Because the, the stuff that he's doing on human learning systems and we work together um, on on developing facilitator training for learning communities where you know, people come together as peers who are close to a particular topic and create spaces well the simple question is what do you need to talk authentically about your work mm-hmm. as, as a group as a group of peers because mistakes are ine- inevitable we work in complex environments where um your outcome is never certain things are iterative you can't you know not everything is under your control um and toby's work on human learning systems and they've just published an ebook on uh, public service for the real world and that's all comes from Toby about how you do manage those vulnerabilities and and create custodier cultures and have generosity and authenticity um, about about the practice that we do.
2: Yeah, um, I mean perhaps we should get him on and do a podcast about those learning systems. But what what is a uh, learning health system? Have I got that right? Have I got the phrase right? Well, there's both. I had a paper up this morning that had your name on it as part of a, a group of people. Doing learning health systems is that right? I don't, I don't really know what a learning health system is what, what is it so there's a couple of, of things that are really closely coupled
1: and one is the human learning systems work that toby's doing and then there's also this concept of a learning health system and they've, they've got so many similarities and the key word is learning and and as, as toby said on his, his tweet learning is the strategy as we talk about with writing, you know, writing is thinking, but writing is is also learning. Mm. So um, the human learning systems is about an alternative approach to um, ways that things may have been traditionally done in in public service management about how we manage in complexity, how we organise ourselves and systems in a way that supports continuous, mutual, respectful learning. So learning is the strategy. Learning health systems. Is very closely related and really recommend Tom Foley's work on the Learning Healthcare Project. Um, he's just published a, a, a report, which is maybe where you saw, saw my name, as he fantastically and generously invited me to be part of a couple of
2: workshops. The uh, Health Foundation.
1: Yes, yeah. And really fantastic report about how we create a uh, positive, virtuous cycle Informed by data, so how does how does data and knowledge inform um, you know, kind of continuous improvement in terms of those direct care conversations um, at, a, at a sort of micro, macro, meso sort of levels? Really mm. um, fantastic stuff.
2: a bit of you know Marcus Bohr talks about Royal College three mm. and the idea that when you when you're actually treating the patient that you, there's information being fed back from Things that other people have learned that is presented back to you at the point that you're trying yeah. to deliver care. Am I yeah. thinking about that the right way? It's sort of like a, a feedback loop. Someone did something, someone learned about it, and then that's coming back into yeah. the point where you're you're delivering again. Is that a learning health system?
1: Learning, I mean, like with both of them, learning is the strategy. And there's definitely that how we inform at all of those levels. So Yeah, I hadn't thought, I hadn't thought directly about what Marcus has been describing there in 3.0, but yeah, all of that, all of that. The thing with this is the role that groups play um, in, in, in making sense of things and sharing knowledge and sharing our, because the reflexivity that you described with, you know, I get my ideas down on paper and I go, do I need that? Do I not? When I'm coding, when I'm writing. But that reflexivity, there's a real role for it in kind of reflective learning, reflective practice, reflective thinking. But I can be guilty of sitting and having a think um, and without that constructive, reflective dialogue that goes on in in group here, respectful, intentional conversations can be just as uh, alluded either way. It was really great. It was really awful. And and having authentic conversations um, and good groups, well facilitated with structure, with that intention of learning is the way our first Mandalorian reference in there, with learning is the way, then makes reflection real, I think. Makes reflection, shared, collective improvement. Right, I'm not using sentences anymore. I'm now just throwing out words.
2: Welcome to the club. I've been doing it my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't complete a sentence. So you're actually employed by... I'm
1: employed by NHS England and Improvement. So my my half my week is I work um, with clinical networks in the north of England and uh, the other half of my week is as a PhD student at Newcastle University and an honorary researcher as well. So I've got three different hats.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. So what faculty do you end up in? Faculty of Medical Sciences. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And so the PhD you're doing, what what is the subject of it? How would you summarise it? The elevator pitch. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, How would I summarise it? The, uh, the research question is um, how, because what I say is, is, how does a region come together to do a thing? And the thing in question is a shared care record. So the question is about the regional strategic adoption of shared care records in health and social care, multi-organisation, multidisciplinary, multi-specialty, potentially multi-sector. So how do we get from an idea of a thing To the point where a group of organisations who are set up legally independent have that single intention and agree to do a thing together. And the lens that I'm using is normalisation process theory, which comes from implementation science. Again, Good uh, kind of groups with with northeast, and it's a lens that looks at with, with different constructs for different elements of, of the implementation process. And it's a middle range theory. You've got them started. You did say didn't say summarize.
2: How did how did people come together to solve a collective action problem? A collective action
1: so, dilemma. Correct.
2: Yeah, that seems to be a thing. Now, in other other areas, there's kind of market forces, and you know, people are incentivized because they can. Make money out of solving some painful problem. And so they'll they'll come along and they'll deliver that. You know, sorry, it it is me going down my slivering uh dark capitalist route. But people people are rewarded for spotting problems and then and then trying to to solve them. But in health tech, sometimes those incentives aren't well aligned. And you and so you have a, a problem like the ability to share care records where there is no great financial incentive to solve it. So you're looking specifically kind of at those sorts of problems, aren't we? Yeah.
1: What what are the factors Um, and an alignment of of the seven moons of Whoosh yeah, now that's a Doctor Who reference. So we're going the full <laughs> sci-fi
2: set today, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we've done a lot. Mandalorian, Doctor Who. We've
1: done Harry Potter. Did, did we do a Star Wars Direct? Have we done one of those? We'll, yeah, we'll, that yeah,
0: we'll get there in there somewhere. We'll get there.
1: <laughs> See that completeness thing. <laughs> I say I'm not a complete finisher. And yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so what are the factors and and and, and what is the I, I think something that's emerging is is about yeah, alignment of factors. I'm um, early days, I'm part-time, two years in, deep in the literature, starting to see what's emerging. So it's it's very much um, yeah, I'll I'll tell you, I'll tell you in a bit. Can I come back? Yes, please.
2: Yeah. Did I just invite myself back? Yeah, we'd like to hear more about the PhD. So when you're not doing a PhD, you're at NHS England slash mm-hmm. improvement. That mm-hmm. no one knows what to call that thing anymore. Are they going one way? Are they going to call it NHS England and just get rid of the improvement part? Do you know? I'll be calling it NHS England slash improvement every day.
1: EI rolls off the tongue for me now.
2: Does it? Is that what we're going with? EI, yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. NHSEI. What what happens there? What, what happens there? Mm.
1: So again, my my role system system wide um, across the northeast and North Cumbria, bringing people together clinical voice, collective learning, learning really a key theme throughout, I guess, all of this work, actually. It's, it's really come up as the word of, if we were going to do a word cloud, mm-hmm. can we do a word cloud? I'd like that. That would fit in with the writing thing. Yeah. That could be our inspiration gotcha. for our September writing, writing challenge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, system level things that are done. A system, collective voice, clinical expertise across specialties.
2: Definitely a theme of groups. So is that things, things like... Multidisciplinary team meetings, or or is that that's more within a specific trust? Yeah, that, that's
1: more of a well, no, because it could be multi organisational MDTs, but uh, sort of inter organisational,
2: multi institution.
1: Yeah, yeah, hmm. on a on a on a topic of either kind of pathways or you know collective challenges. How are we going to do this? How are you doing that? Who's doing what really well? How can we learn from each other? What, what do we need to operate at a kind of system level across this clinical specialty?
2: And what do we need? What, what's missing? I, I'm trying to do a sort of process review at the moment. Just I'm trying to understand where SADS products fit within a wider need of a, of, of a hospital like all the problems you might have, recruitment, workforce, you know, rostering. We, we, we tend to think in work, workforce terms, but all the way through to the patient, you know, risk systems, incident management, how that goes to learning systems, learning management, VLEs, training gaps, skills gaps, analysis, how how they learn how to do case studies. Um, and so i I'm sort of putting that process plan together, a process map together, top architectural level. But I wanted to share it with other trusts and other organizations and say, this is how I think a hospital runs. If I was doing a hospital computer game, here are the main elements of Theme Hospital 2.0. How does that look to you? But it's not obvious where to go for that other than places like Twitter Absolutely. and say, hey, hey, look what I made. And actually, Twitter has been a great help in bringing people together who, you know, uh, connecting people up. I, I, I just prior to this podcast, um, I was contacting Andy Callow at Northampton and Kettering General is a CDIO there. And I put him in touch with someone at Oxley's who's been doing some bed management stuff. And it's only really because I saw a tweet fly by months back and got I ended up in a conversation with him and you sort of connecting up those those dots. But there's, a, there's no hub. There's no specific place.
1: I immediately, I mean, putting my day job to one side, I immediately thought about the academic health sciences and science networks, who I'm deeply grateful for our AHSN Northeast North Cumbria, because in in looking at shared care record and that kind of strategic multi-agency adoption, um, very kindly uh, sponsoring my PhD, so I'll give them a transparency and shout out (laughs) there. Fantastic sort of hub for innovation and uh, improvement and QI. I know certainly there's uh, leadership here now is, um, across North East North Cumbria around the Q community, the health foundation initiative and an innovation pathways and so on.
2: Are they on your radar? Yeah, to be honest, I get so confused because obviously there's so many organisations and bodies, and I just you're never quite sure where to put your energy in terms of communicating something like that. It's actually one of the things I wrote about in my one of my thirty. 30 days was about sense-making and trying to, when you're in an information-rich environment, where essentially information is cheap, there's such an abundant supply of it. In the old days, you needed access to a library or or some great thinker in your town, the guy who could read (laughs) where the rest of you couldn't. Um, You needed access to that. And in the modern era, actually, we've got an abundance of information. And the challenge we're all faced with is sort of curating it and understanding it and working out where the main places are to go, which is a challenge as humans. We I don't think we've ever had before. And so, the nhs and the organizations involved in it and people you know academic health science networks you know informatics in the pub there are so many kind of it, almost informal groups there's twitter communities there's the ICSs now that are getting formed there's uh there's just kind of regional like there is definitely a geordie thing getting the geordie network you know in Joe mcdonald opened up a world of geordies <laughs> <laughs> to be <laughs> geordie world i was in geordie world and uh and then the, and then there's the, the sort of advocates of uh open source technology there's so much over overlap of all of these communities and um i'm never quite sure where to go to to work out even how all those communities sit. I went to NHS hack day and my project that I pitched that did very badly we've mentioned that about yeah. three times yeah. on this podcast. You're not better. My failed NHS <laughs> I'm not better. <laughs> I keep I keep talking about it. i am got to get psychotherapy. <laughs> But my pitch there was to try and look at the Twitterverse and and try and ice work out what communities actually exist there because you can you can start you can start doing community discovery so you can start to say oh who, who are this bunch and they might be linked by region but they might be linked by the fact that they've got a, um, an academic interest in health informatics or they might be informaticians or they might be. Coders in a specific language, and so you start to see these clouds of community, and and the overlaps between them, and just trying to interpret that. So that sort of graphed community discovery is something that really interests me because the world's too complicated, and I'm desperately driving myself mad trying to trying to curate and understand all of these groups and how they all fit together.
1: The world is complicated and and complex. I guess I've, I've found uh, there's a model that Professor Mike Martin talks about, which is epistemic registers, but more affectionately known as Mike's layers. And it, it's a way of organizing. The different kind of layers of, of systems. But It's um, yeah, Mike's layers and it, it's a way, a way of kind of organising and, and making sense of the different levels of stuff that happen. Engineering view, I'm reading this now, I don't know if I Informatics view, conversational view and sociocultural cultural view. So an engineering view of a project or an activity is the boxes and the wires and the, 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 the terabit bikes and everything that goes. It's the engineering view and the informatics view might be the coding or the, the meanings, of messages, documents. The conversational view is about roles and transactions and about obligations and, and responsibilities. And then the social cultural view is about people, identities and norms and values. Does that make sense to you in terms yeah. of your...
2: Yes, it does. Yeah. Elements. What's
1: it called? Table, uh, of oh, the, the
2: execution essentials, the periodic yeah. table.
1: Periodic thing. table. Thank you. I haven't got uh, a science A-level... <laughs> so so yeah does it relate to your periodic table
2: yeah it it does in a sense I mean there's sort of technical in there there's uh leadership there's uh cultural which I guess is down that kind of socio-cultural part of things the technical probably is aligned with the concept of engineering informatician is about um uh I think actually there's probably quite a lot of parallels there with the um grouping that we've put down as openness, because I see that as a, as a sort of lack of friction of information between those between those groups um, That's my electronic engineering brain take on things. It's always about reducing the resistance between between um different groups in the network. you know, creating informatics in the pub reduced the friction between informaticians in in all of these different organizations. And I I had a very long conversation with uh, somebody else who's an electronic engineer working in Oxley's as a technical analyst. We were talking a little bit about how we saw things in terms of engineering, and and because we both come at things from a technical mind, um, how you can have a tendency to see technical solutions to things, which is useful, useful, but you tend to over um, overplay the importance of a technical sort of quantitative analysis of something rather than come along with social solutions to the same problem. So, uh, And the specific we were talking about was sort of capacity and demand management in, in a hospital for a service and um, in a mental health trust as, as we happen to be talking about, um, you know, a doctor having uh, like a really high acuity patient um, or simply being understaffed. And we were talking about how there have been so many sort of processes that tried to capture either through sort of job planning or capacity management that try to actually monitor some sort of metric, be it like an outcome on a patient record system to sort of say, oh, this is slowed down or or you've got a lot of patients here and their acuity is at level seven or blah, blah, blah. And we were sort of saying, well, actually perhaps the solution here is not to measure those things. Perhaps the solution is a sort of social solution to make sure that the doctors or the clinicians in those positions have a good communication route, low friction communication route out to the people who are able to affect some change to that, that scenario. So be it that they're a doctor, it, or, or a nurse, or, or or somebody working in that setting, that they have an ability to talk to people who are involved in recruitment and say we're we're hurting here. Like they've got they've got a communication channel, and that actually doesn't require a sort of technical sensor. There's no there's no sort of sensory measurement of of their situation that is alert then alerting on their behalf mm-hmm. the people who can bring about change. Does, it, does that make sense? So that there are social solutions to technical problems and as certainly i found that running the company is often we've we've got um like a communications channel We, we, we use skype we've used skype for for 10 years and um we've got a really good route of communication between our customer support team and our technical team and that i see that as a sort of a social solution to a technical problem which is like how do you how do you improve the features in a software system? <laughs> Will you you make sure that the people asking for those features mm-hmm. are well connected to the people who can deliver them.
1: I, I wonder. No, I, no, I, I, I think re- reducing the distance and reducing the friction is is a feature of. Groups. I mean, where groups and meeting with peers and having spaces and occasions to do that stuff becomes frictiony. is because of time mm. and the value that we put on reflective peer learning and knowledge exchange in that sort of space. But I wonder if, not, not particularly your, your team, but I wonder in teams in general, how, uh, how many development requests coming through a support desk or coming through... Or, or yeah, or development requests or fixes or features that people just don't
2: know about. Yeah, it already does that. You have to... Yeah, it already does it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's why we have the chat support system. I sound like I'm plugging our system here, but that's why we have the chat support system because the the chat agents know the system really well. And often those features that are being asked for are actually in the system already, as you just said. And the solution isn't to... Build more of them, or make the button bigger, or something. It's to connect those people to somebody who can go, yeah, it's over here, mm-hmm. yeah. Because because the system's too big and too yeah. broad to yeah. signpost everything. Yeah. So you you need you need someone who's essentially a tour guide through those things. And to this day, I don't know why more companies don't have like a, essentially a chat person because I I I see a chat agent as a social solution to to that technical problem. Also, in terms of like gathering user feedback, I see so much stuff on Twitter about kind of user, um, putting the user first and user-centered design. And I'm like, well, where's your chat system? Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Because because if you genuinely put the user first uh, and you've got a software system or you've got a software as a service system, then giving that person the ability to communicate with you about a problem that you have, would would just reduce that friction to, to nothing. It would make it, would make it a 10th. If I could go on the HMRC website and I've got an issue and I'm like, where the hell is my, my last tax return? I can't seem to find it. If there's a chat thing that pops up and, there, and it's somebody who's actually got agency who's able to help me find that thing and is knowledgeable, that just reduces that friction. Yeah massively between between finding out what, what that user's actual problems are i think some of the work you you're doing around joe mcdonald explained uh described you to me as a human network engineer and uh i i really like that that sort of description because it is that sort of social technical problem solving and i actually i can see why you were interested in writing because so much of this is about articulating and storytelling like getting people together and you probably saw the informatics in the pub whatsapp group the other day where um I can't, uh, who is it it's uh rob alcock i think moved to gloucester and he was talking about the kind of digital journey that they're on and everyone went oh that sounds interesting can you do like a talk on that and it's like well it is a story right it's like yes. a war story it's like yeah here's uh, here's the journey that we've been going on. Here's the problems we found. And yeah. it's sort of that writing. It's that storytelling yeah. about something that's actually quite technical.
1: Maybe my degree in English has landed me in a place that makes more sense now we talk about it. Yeah. yeah. What you're describing there with the chat function, it really resonates with with what I saw from the nine teams with you, with local user groups, with uh, people getting together with, with peers who had you know, learned by doing um, and knew what features were. And we tried some things, where it was, you know, related to directly to improving how the practice worked or improving one bit of hair or building templates or, you know, an expertise absolutely across Mike's layers, you know, have it, having a system in place and the boxes and the wires and all of that, but being able to write a template or write a, um, a protocol and understanding coding and then knowing what, it, what sense that makes and understanding using the computer in the consulting room, understanding that information is the third partner in a consultation and you know, all of that works absolutely across across Mike's lanes. How do I can sometimes start with what we've done, but, and that can be an inspiring. Oh, okay, you know, sometimes it can come from both. Come, come from remembering and imagining.
2: Yeah.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your work on the Great North Care Record?
2: Isn't that the case study in how you get all of these organisations? You mentioned your PhD. Yeah, you've yeah. Got yeah. This collective action dilemma. Yeah, Marg and
1: wonderful thinking.
2: You're all about when you have those collective action dilemmas, how do you get people together? This is your PhD, right? Mm. How do you get people together who are in very different organizations, perhaps paid differently, Mm. funded differently, uh, different sector maybe even, um, Mm. how do you get them to share such a critical bit of data where the perhaps the financial incentive so it's not it's like there's no kind of Mm. decent market solution to this Mm. how do you get them to communicate and the great north care record is a great case study in in that right so Mm. does that feature in your phd yeah yeah yeah
1: essentially a case study of great north care record more or less
2: so I don't want Joe's head to get too big here, but how, how did you get? How did you get involved in the Great North Care Record? You were one of the or- originals, right?
1: Uh, almost quite early. Quite early. Um, so I've known some of the people involved already, um, that longevity of, of relationships of uh, in the Northeastern groups and who knows who. Um, and I joined um, the Great North Care Accord to help with um, professional engagement which had uh, part, part of a. I mean, I mean that was fun. Yeah, yeah great North. As you can imagine, you, you know Joe, you know yeah exactly. And so so working out what what would be helpful around professional engagement, absolutely recognizing that um, you know clinically led was really important. People process technology to use it. You know the simplest sort of sort of model. Um, yeah. What what was needed in terms of fresh engagement program, and what have people learned from other projects? So we we set about doing a a, a process of, of finding out what would be helpful, and settled on a number of a number of kind of activities within the professional engagement programme. And some of it was about, we set up a great North care network and started working with with Marcus, setting up a discourse forum for some asynchronous communication, uh, reducing the distance between between people. But also um, not everyone can get in the room, even even when the room becomes virtual via Teams. Not not everybody can be in the room uh, by virtue of the kind of authority, of structural authority, because, you know, directors make decisions. But the voice abuser, I was trained, my facilitation skills, I was trained in Deming and the, 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 thing that stays stays you know the just one thing thing is ask the user ask the person that's close to the work you know what is your pain what's your what's the one thing you'd like to solve so reducing that distance between all the different actors um, via an asynchronous forum um, and, and and looking at the fantastic stuff that had been done with the ccio network and nationally with discourse was, was really key so we set about um, working with uh, uh, Annette Chambers, who had um, run, again, a bit of history, the Clinical Health and Photics Network, a very well-established group, and seeing how elements of that could evolve and setting up a, a, re, a re, refocus, reinvigorated uh, network. We also um, did some, some work, participatory design work with groups um, around engaging um, practitioners, very much case direct care focus so this process called amy's page brings together a group of peers um with a pre-written uh before we get in the room a small group of written fictional scenario who is the amy that your service wishes to serve who's the amy that you work with who are you who's your who do you want to improve things for who are you working for and amy uh, might be 87 frail Dogs died. Some lives in Black Blackpool, i.e., a long way away. Nothing specific <laughs> about Blackpool, but a long way away. Um, had a knee replacement. You know, a number of, of stuff going on, i.e., real life. Or Amy might be fourteen, refusing suddenly, refusing to go to school. Long long referral to uh, you know.
2: We're back. We're back to storytelling. Yeah, it's telling us.
1: Yeah, telling a story. It's important. Uh, so a complex messy normal set of stuff that is about yeah the, the the medical features of amy but also the the you know housing and social care and family and who's around and what's going on at school and writing a, a scenario and then getting into a room the group and saying is this your amy is this amy the one that you work for and, and everybody went absolutely absolutely that's sorry. apart from one group who said No, she's doing all right. We only see her when things get really messy. Okay. Um, So that was just one nice, you know, all of these features of an Amy's life, of of an Amy. And we said, okay, so given your different roles around Amy, what's the information you need to know? What's the information you need to write down? And what do you need to tell someone? and people working in small groups with a large bit of paper and essentially designing a health information exchange. Designing. Well, I want to know that. Well, I don't need to know that. Um, what I want to tell somebody is that um, I'm a GP. I've suggested Amy needs to go and talk to the uh, health visitor. I don't need to know the detail of what went on, but actually what I want to know is she's been. Okay, what happened in the conversations up to her? They'll tell me if there's anything else I, I need to know or need to know. Um, and how to create this, this holistic health information exchange, which is safe because there's always conversations about technical security. There's always conversations about consent. There's always conversations in those spaces about professional standards, about roles, about responsibilities, about referral and pathway and baselining and data and learning health systems and data sets. But nobody ever mentions any of that stuff. What we talk about is Amy. What do you need to know? What do you need to write down? What do you need to tell somebody? And the rest is a byproduct of that, as it should be. How do we make safe, secure, ethical, legal, driven information so that we can do the job that we want to do in our professional role to help and work with Amy? So that was part of the professional engagement programme when we ran a whole bunch of those workshops. Um, one of the other exercises we did was say, uh, you know, from your perspective as a practitioner in this Amy's Picture Workshop, who's involved with Amy? And we said everybody, everybody, not, not just statutory services, but everybody who has a role in keeping Amy well and uh, generated this, this model of constellation of care. Because there are all these stars and some of them are further away and some of them you can see and some of them you can't, some of them are close by, but everybody's got a role. Now, nobody was ever saying, and uh, Amy's health record should be opened up to everybody in that constellation of care, but it does invite a different conversation about consent and about consent models and about who can write into the record um, and about Amy's main carer who is her daughter in scenario being able to write into the record even if not not okay to see what's in the record although that's a debate you know who who should be able to see what but the the the, the absolute respectful position ask Amy consent that's where that's where permissions and consent start. So we never mentioned data sets. We never mentioned uh, interoperability or, or, or standards or, or technical development stuff. Or we never mentioned uh, health information exchanges. We, we started with here's our Amy, what's needed.
2: Mm. That sort of gets into Mike's socio cultural element rather, rather than the engineering layer.
1: It should be all of them because it all should come out and uh, very. Eagle-eyed of you, because that model of Amy's pay was actually developed by Rob Wilson, husband Rob, and mark Martin.
2: Okay, so very
1: eagle-eyed of you. <laughs>
0: there
2: you go. <laughs> it's interesting when I've been doing this sort of process mapping. I've tried to go back from um patient contentment and staff contentment, and and sort of go back from there. And when when you start to think about that sort of constellation of care, as you as you describe it. You do pick up on all of the things that may not be obvious to a kind of engineering approach. Things like the involvement of schools in care, in picking up, like uh, we're doing an ADHD assessment on my son at the moment, and um you know, and the school has quite a big input in 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 getting the forms processed, and then it goes off to the mental health trust, and it's like it's all linked <laughs> it's all sort of linked up and you you think oh yeah yeah schools oh god yeah and then and then it, it might be someone's social group or some some other sort of support network that you don't really think of as being part of healthcare in its strictest possible sense
1: health care it it, it is it is it is a really really i, I think you really like Toby and Coe's uh, human system stuff because they take account of, of this sort of complexity. And, and the example that I used to kind of lead with in introducing some of the Amy's Page workshops was an um, example that we live near quite a busy road. And um, when my, uh, one of my boys started walking to school... Uh, he wanted to walk by himself quite quite rightly he was old enough mm. and I was a bit still a bit clucky and it's quite it is quite a busy road. Um, we've got a um a pedestrian patrol crossing mm-hmm. guy and when the child had gone up to school what built my confidence was um well a nobody had phoned me uh, but b was that when I walked up with a younger child to take them to school, across the crossing would always say, Oh, saw your boy this morning, crossing happily. So all right, maybe I should have just got over myself, but you know, it was it was the first. And that was just a reassuring part of our family's constellation of care. A bit of information exchange that reassured me. I mean, stop telling me I stopped asking. But for the yeah. first few times, as I got
2: my, my confidence, he was fine. Yeah, you—you you gave a strange name for a lollipop man. <laughs> Is he a <the> lollipop man? <laughs> I was thinking that. What do you call him? a Pedestrian crossing. We call him
0: crossing guards.
2: Guardian <laughs> man, crossing guards. Is that what they call? Patrol. Oh, lollipop Man. Lollipop Man's a great name for the lollipop person. person. Yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't think of that. And that of, was uh, what you took from yeah. the Behind the
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> No, it's true. Like, you don't think of the lollipop man's role in the care of your, your family.
1: But it or, does. But of course, you've put your finger right on a really important language thing about what, what we call one thing actually means something to, to somebody else. Hmm. And as we coded the... Hundreds. Uh, I'll share the. I'll share the slides with you. The literally for any one Amy scenario, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people involved in Amy's constellation of care. Hundreds of them, and um, we did our best to cluster them according to convoluted expressions of role titles, so that Man, Crossing Guard, <laughs> and Room Patrol.
2: What do you think about just the complexity of the world? that we're involved in in sort of health tech I, I call it health tech even then we you know've got different names for the same thing informatics like um this conversation i had with the, this engineer we, we were a bit like wow running a hospital or running a care it's just damn hard and it's it's hard to know where to start you know you talk about the constellation of care there's a hundred 100 different people involved there. we also talk about you know do the one thing go and speak to the person that you're supposed to be looking after and, and go and find out what it is. that's actually their pain point day to day and perhaps go and go and solve that. Do you, are we winning? Are we, is is it just too much information? Is it, is it, it, it's hard, it's hard to get all these informatics systems in place. Was it a simpler world before when, when it was all on paper and folders was, was that a better time or how do we? It it feels like we're all chasing this perfect system somehow, where where care's all linked up, that everyone who needs to know about it is getting the right information, and there's all there's all this sort of willingness to to make it work. There's a lot of us who go to things like informatics in the pub in the evening, and and try and suss these things out. But sometimes I don't want to sound pessimistic here, but sometimes I just feel like God, it's just so damn complex. Like, I'm not quite sure where to begin, or even whose whose efforts to strengthen are or... bitten into such a complex world. This this industry is so 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 complicated at every level. Like the the social, cultural, engineering the 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 complexity of care, the the amount of care pathways, the language that's used. Talk about engineering, you know, and having an engineering mentality, is that so many other industries are simplif—you can simplify them in some way, and and actually because they tend to be more commercial organisations, so like be it Amazon or whatever it is, they can simplify their business and go, I'm only going to serve this group of people here. It, healthcare doesn't have that option; it can't it can't put a footprint around the types of people it's going to serve. It does to some extent, like, like private healthcare, you can go, right, I'm just going to run a Botox surgery. I'm just going to, I'm just going to deal with people who are worried about their face sagging. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, you can, you could just put a ring around it and you can simplify the industry in which you work. Health informatics sort of exists partly because the, the world we operate in it's just so so complex and 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 almost impossible to simplify where where are we where are we winning are we winning can we can we get to that nirvana that utopia
1: Okay,
2: (laughs) (laughs) perfect yeah sorry that did sound a bit dark i don't know i i am optimistic like in a way, because because people were so determined to make it work. But when I go, when I use a health, when I use the hospital, or it is often so disappointing, isn't it? Like the the link up of care and knowledge about what's what's going on. There's definitely some gems. Like I think everyone was pleasantly surprised when they got went and got their vaccine mm-hmm. and it appeared on an app on their phone. And like Twitter went it was like, oh wow, how did that happen? And the um and the booking thing where you could put in your like date of birth and stuff like that. But if anything, that kind of points out just how low our expectations are for, for informatic systems. And it's like, wow, they managed to work out who I was and I could book a vaccine in. Yeah, sorry, I'm so I probably sound really cynical and pessimistic. I, I it's just so complex what, what what we're tackling what well, what's the answer though <laughs> how do we fix this
1: you, you use the word chasing and you use the word winning and it, that kind of implies um a finishing line and this is uh that i don't think there is a finishing line but what there is is a compelling vision a compelling case which and i don't think there is a single finishing line but what there is is a compelling vision which is absolutely in our hearts around what public service is, about what the public sector is for. In terms of a fix, it, it's, it's always iterative. It's, it's always got to be do and improve and one thing and, and, and frustration at the speed of that, absolutely. But you're going to fix that, aren't you? Kevin, you're, that's, you're, you've got that in hand.
2: Yeah, we're trying. So I
1: don't think there is a single fix or a single finishing line there's a compelling vision for how informatics can can help and we 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 must like you said with the vaccination stuff bear in mind where it works I think there's two sorts no there's many sorts of informatics and the way that primary care IT works And, you know, my introduction to this world is a different sort of informatics to what happens in hospital and a different sort. I mean, just the estates is different. GP generally has their own office. They generally have their own screen that they can turn around and show me if they want to. They generally have people coming in and ask them. There's a keyboard that is theirs and it's relatively fixed. Hospitals don't generally work like that. You don't consult out of your own office in quite the same way. So therefore, the technology is different. I haven't seen a GP not code the consultation as we go along for years and years and years. Whereas there is, that isn't always how it happens in hospitals. And the purpose of the data is different. And again, this sort of loops back to some of the human learning systems stuff about, about data for performance as opposed to data for learning and and data for what we mean by performance and performance management and targets, which Toby won't be able to explain much more beautifully and eloquently than I can. So there are some really, really big challenges but but I've hung around for 30 years because I'm really hopeful and still excited and Technology moves on, so there's never going to be that finishing line. And each each new iteration brings its affordances within that complexity, but understanding what we control of and uncoupling control over outcomes from, you know, in a complex environment, is probably going to help us stay on the right track, maybe. Mm. Did any of that make sense?
2: Yeah, it cheered me right (laughs) up. (laughs) No, it did make sense.
1: And did it cheer you up?
2: Yeah, I, I, well, it made me realize, that actually, we spend a lot of our time in secondary care and hospitals, and I I do think that there's more room for improvement there, that the GP surgeries are smaller, there's more of a sense of, um, I don't know, there's, there's more of a connectedness, I think, between the GPs, they all seem to actually talk to each other a bit more, there's a lot of the sort of case studies seem to come out of primary care rather than than secondary care you, you know good practice stuff and secondary care seems to have a bit of catching up to do you, for example one one of the things on my kind of process map of patient contentment is sort of consistently having the same carer when you go back when you go to primary care obviously you've got your gp and the gp's got in their own brain they've got some knowledge of where you've come from and and Your medical history just because they've seen you before when you go to secondary care you can turn up and get a different consultant and you've got to explain to them all again and so there's just you've you've got another problem there which is just uh, making sure that you're treated by the same person again the next time if possible you know and we we need to build that into our systems to make sure there's like a consistency of of care in in secondary care, and mm-hmm. so I, I, it's just because it's a bigger organisation, it's harder, I think, mm-hmm. to organise. And I think that's where my pessimism that, that you know this thing is just complex. But it's because I spend so much time in secondary care, where where it is, it's just such a monster. Like running a hospital, even knowing who your staff are, is a massive problem. Yeah, and and I, and ju-
1: I mean, I just just on to clarify, I want to say uncoupling sort of input from. Outcomes. I, d- I don't mean that we shouldn't be absolutely focused on 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 outcomes, but outcomes in, in themselves are not a way. It, outcomes in themselves, there are many factors that contribute to outcomes, and uh you, you know, being cognizant of that in a complex environment is, is kind of what I meant. And yeah, I know. I yeah, I feel your
2: pain. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to end on a What have
0: you done? <laughs> For that, cut that bit
2: out, where I get really melancholic. I'm not melancholic at all. I just, you know, it is sort of exhausting trying to try to improve things sometimes because it's just so it's just so complex. The the thing that we're all trying to solve.
1: Well, do one thing.
2: mathematics. yeah, do the one thing. Do one thing.
1: Be aware of the complexity, but.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's getting to that Amy, isn't it? It's getting that getting Amy, getting that archetype and finding out what their actual pain is. Something we do with, with systems when we're trying to work out how to develop a product. One of the my favorite things to ask is the user of that system. So often it'd be like an administrator or a ro- roster or a rotor coordinator and say to them, what do you do every day? Like as in when you get in, what's the thing that takes up loads of your time? And they'll say, "Oh, doing the switchboard uh, for on-call staff takes me a couple of hours a day." And like, right, okay, that's the problem. <laughs> you know, let's get rid of that thing that takes you two hours every day and and, and remove it. And um, maybe maybe that's the answer. Is it's such a it's such a monstrously difficult informational problem to solve that you just need to find that endpoint and then just mm-hmm. work work backwards from there. That's your first first bite. That's
1: the person that does the job.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Is this where the idea that all systems should that are clinically led comes from? Do you think? Because there does seem to be a sentiment that when it comes to health IT and maybe informatics, but certainly health tech, that there's this belief that there should always be a clinician involved. And that frustrates me sometimes because I'm like, they don't they don't always understand. The engineering solution to the problem, it can get it can get led from from the other end, and you end up with somebody with people who've got no appreciation for what tools are available to solve that problem. So down the line,
1: uh, go back to Mike's layers. Uh, it, it, the the idea of a boundary spanner is is if you've got the layers and having a way of um, communicating between them and and working with those layers in harmony so, so one can't happen without the other or one one you know how do we how do we um have a common language for bringing you know the technical layer the engineering layer and um you know the concept of all well, i don't know what it's like to sit as a clinician in consultation, because I've never been a clinician in consultation. So I can only ever imagine. So already there's a distance there. It doesn't mean that my perspective isn't valid. It doesn't mean that I'm not, um, you know, got a massive role to play in, or a little role, actually. (laughs) A little role that we haven't all got. We talk about constellation of care. There's the constellation of delivery, and it needs all of us across all of those apostolic registers who can make things happen. And that—that's a group. It takes a takes takes a village to raise an informatics project.
0: I wanted to ask a question because you had mentioned something about post-it notes in our pre-chat, and I want to know why they're so important to you. I'm I've been dying to ask you this one.
1: A critical skill is knowing how to tear a post-it note. Um, harder in virtual times, but there's definitely software around that does. Does that job? The thing about post-it notes with a group is that it enables getting to a common language. When when somebody says something, it's gone. Okay, a trace of it is it's gone. If you write things down, and a post-it is a really good way to stick it on a wall. Okay, is that right? Is that what we meant? Oh no, actually, what I meant was that it just immediately becomes a very good way of getting to what we mean as opposed to what we think somebody else meant. So reader reader intention, no, author intention, reader response. And we can then start to cluster things. So for the visual people amongst us, it's uh, it's great because you can see things. It becomes a very visual thing. For uh, other sorts of people, you know, I like to you know, i someone always the first to jump up and want to do the notes, but it works across all of those ways of learning and becomes everybody pointed, literally pointing in the same direction it becomes much easier to say, oh no, what I meant was not, that's not right, you've not understood, you know, it, it becomes a very good way of, of that collaborative, so collaborative working. So the thing about meetings and groups is that I think there's some value in There's some value in getting out post-it notes and having some structure and having the intention about what the meeting is for. Otherwise, it's just a meeting. So the value of sticky notes is really, really key. They're portable, they're visual, they enable us to cluster ideas together, they enable us to refine and discard. Simple stuff. Well, what's this got to do with health and Well, or, or health tech or, or anything? But about facilitating group, groups with respect and listening and asking the people that do the job and, and making sense and putting some structuring so that we've got more of understanding of, of, of what people's pain is, about what the compelling view is, about the wisdom that people have got because people have got experience about how do we articulate the obvious because the thing with obvious is you don't need to say it, right? Because what do do? what's obvious to you isn't obvious right. to me. So structure, that's t- totally Hermione. <laughs> stuff,
0: isn't it? <laughs> Thank you, Hermione. there's one thing that our listeners should know besides post-it notes, what would that be? Does it have to be one? No, actually, you could have multiple things, absolutely.
1: To consider that whole learning is the strategy approach, um, human learning systems, learning health systems, how that what that means to us in complexity facilitate good groups throwing a group of people together is is magical um, but more magical if people feel heard and valued and you can't edit thin air and the other thing this is a massive segue out of anything we've talked about but design for part-time i haven't kind of mentioned that but i you know i have two part-time jobs and people work part-time for many many reasons and designing, you know, what we know about modular approaches and collective action dilemmas, but modular approaches. We don't design jobs for part-time. We don't design jobs on a modular basis where we can put together, well, that bit and that bit and that bit equals a half-time job and that enables people to do the things that they want to do. Portfolio working or whatever the reasons for people work part-time and have systems behind that that support that. It's
0: good. I agree. You're part time. <laughs> Sorry. <for you. laughs> <Pretty soon. laughs>
1: part-time and part-time. I'm you know, I have three half-time yeah. you know, family are yeah very
0: important very important.
2: Yeah, right. I'm part-time too. I'm just not supposed to be
0: <laughs> mentally you're part-time in multiple places.
2: <laughs> I just I can't believe that people are really supposed to come in five days a week and just use their best mental effort Monday to Friday nine until five. That just does not seem like a realistic yeah. exp- expectation of anybody. That's my take. Mm. Oh, we did not ask about your app, the one in the yeah. world. Tell us about that.
1: Look, keep it polished behind. Is that have a Miley Granger thing? So yeah, oh, wow. this is the it's a little bit old now, it's 2012, so it's 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 getting on for 10 years old next year. And that is the NHS Innovations North, uh, Bright Ideas um, in Health Wars 2012, Innovative Technology or Device. And I'm super, super proud of that. Um, collaborative efforts um, with lots and lots of partners. Um, and what we did was we built um, a fatigue symptom management app. We took a tool with a, Fatigue uh, consultant, paediatrician that I've known before, um, fantastic clinician and researcher and academic from Bristol. And uh, took a tool that she used for kind of symptom fatigue level mapping that was on uh, a spreadsheet and we turned it into an app. And um I learned so much mm. during that process. And um, we got we it out, six month project that took a year and a half. Of course, it went over budget, certainly went over time learned a lot, did something that was did one thing, it was it was neat, it did the job, it was clinically led, managerially enabled, perfect mix of socio and technical, I think. Um, and delighted to get to have got that award. It was quite innovative at the time. Very dramatic. One of my best, best work moments ever getting a call from our developer that we work with saying uh, right, I'm just like to uh, send it off to the app store is it UK territory or, or do you want to go global? Let's go yeah. global. <laughs> so, so, seriously one of the best conversations I've ever had. But also um oh the, the getting the legals right, getting the uh, the disclaimers right, getting the help function right, getting all, all of the other bits and pieces. We had a really good tool that worked really well on paper. It was a valid tool. Um, and turning it into an app, that was just part of Part of the story, and two things that were really key was 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 one about two weeks before that global launch. Somebody said, uh, colleague said, oh, you should have a coffee with um, with with, at, uh, with with Mike Trinnell actually." Who was? I should get Mike Trinnell Um, yeah. with Mike Trinnell Um, and he'll talk to you about some things he's done and the learning that came from that one coffee. And it was just like, you know, oh, I wish I had known. So that was partly why we delayed, because there were some nuggets in there that were so, I mean, what we were delivering was absolutely fine, but just a few simple things that just made it so much better. So the power of that conversation, the power of wasn't quite a great was to others. Um, so massive you know, respect for Mike, but we ended up setting up a bit of a network around people who were developing health apps. And the other challenge was, it was great, but it, it wasn't a medical device. But it didn't talk to anything. Now, the, we set it up so the user could download a PDF of their own data. So what are my activity levels? How tired do I feel today? What's, what do I think is causing that? So that when I go to see, I haven't actually said what the app does. Am I? But um, um, it didn't talk to anything. The user could download a PDF that they could then email or take along to the consultation. And Look, this is a, a pattern over the last, since I last saw you to their clinician, as opposed to what I can remember, which is what I like. I talk about what just happened in the last three days and that was kind of the purpose. But could that be, was it tacked to anything? Could it be important? Could I contribute as Amy into my health record? Too hard, too expensive, didn't know where to go. And I, I like to think I'm quite discerning. I'm not technical, but I know a little bit about how things work and it was just too hard. So it did a great job. It did one thing. It won an award, but... I wish I'd known it towards the end. What I, you know, I wish I'd known it at start, like you, towards the end, and that challenge of, as, as a user of a symptom management app, contributing my data into my health records. I think
2: we're still, at the end of mm. wow! Oh, I'm glad we asked yeah. that.
0: Well, thank you, Lou. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Lou about life hacks, thinking out loud, and the significance of learning every day. You can find out more about Sard by visiting sardjv.co.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at sardjv and use hashtag Sardisms. Until next time, have a great week.